Hey, how's it going? My name is Mike. Welcome to Tell You What, the podcast, where we talk with young musicians about the craft of songwriting, performance, and 11 other things. Our guest for this episode is Logan Ledger, and I feel particularly lucky to have been able to have Logan on the program. Logan is a singer-songwriter currently residing in Nashville. He landed in Nashville after college, and after a few short years there trying to find his way as a musician, Logan's music caught the attention of legendary producer T-Bone Burnett, who quickly realized Logan's potential and signed on to produce his first record. We'll have to wait until early next year for the full album's release, but Logan has put out a couple of songs from it, and it's easy to hear why there is so much buzz already generated about Logan and his music. His voice and the way he uses it are really something. Here are T-Bone's words about Logan's sound. Logan has a voice filled with history, Burnett said. I could hear echoes of one great singer after another in his tone. That's pretty high praise from one who would know. I had the pleasure of spending a bit of time with Logan while he was here at the house, and aside from being an incredible talent and a sincerely nice, thoughtful, and interesting person, he has an amazingly deep knowledge of country, western, and roots music history. His study is not just academic. He incorporates into his craft what he has learned from some of the legends of the past. Logan talks about this a bit in our discussion. Now, I know, dear listeners, that few, if any of you, would ever consider shutting off an episode of this podcast before reaching its end. However, I urge you to definitely stick around for the completion of this one in particular, for two reasons. One, Logan tells a highly entertaining tale of his first interaction with T-Bone Burnett, and it involves a barbecue at Bono's Malibu House, Ashton Kutcher, you know, all the usual stuff. Second reason to keep listening is that as our talk ended, Logan agreed to play a song live here in the Tell You What studios, which this time actually means our kitchen table, and it was simply awesome. He just grabbed his guitar and started singing. You will get a sense for the skills and the magic that this young man possesses, why I have become such a quick fan, why there are so many who are already eagerly looking forward to hearing more from Logan Ledger. So let's get to it. Here is our discussion with Logan Ledger. All right, Logan, welcome to Tell You What, the podcast. Thanks for taking the time to meet with us here. Great to be here. You are actually our first guest in the new, freshly installed Tell You What, Epiplex <laughs> in Evanston, Illinois. We oh. kind of grew out of the old place as the operation keeps getting bigger. So mm-hmm. here we are. I hope you enjoy the. Oh, I love the digs. Yeah, the view from the 200th floor. We yeah. can see everything from here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so thanks for helping us break in the new the new facility. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about your background when you grew up. Um, what kind of music uh, were you uh, exposed to? you remember? Well, my parents are, aren't really big music people. So most of the music I heard when I was a kid was on the radio in the car. Um, and I really don't remember any specific bands or anything that, that struck me. I, I remember being very musical and singing along. Mm-hmm. The first uh, music that really hit was on my radar that I remember, you know, uh, specifically was when my grandmother introduced me to a lot of oldies, you know, Elvis and Mm -hmm. the Platters and Roy Orbison and Buddy Holly and that kind of thing. I really loved that kind of music. And this was in California where Mm -hmm. you grew up, right? And so when did you pick up a guitar? Um... Well, I didn't pick up the guitar until I was about 12 years old, and my dad was 
getting into playing guitar at that time. Oh, okay. You know, he's not, he wasn't, I say that my parents weren't music people, but my dad, you know, he, he liked, he likes, you know, Neil Young okay. and Led Zeppelin and all sorts of stuff. You know, he, he's a music fan in a way. Right. And he, he plays guitar and uh, he was taking lessons at the time. And, uh, I was inspired by that. I think also maybe my mom thought it would be a good thing for me to do. Because mm-hmm. at that time I was playing way too many video games. <laughs> and it's funny, I started playing music when I was, you know, sort of started playing guitar when I was 11 or 12 years old. Um, and pretty soon after that I just stopped playing video games. Interesting. So it worked. <laughs> so then did you find yourself in a band in high school or just uh, doing it on your own? or? I wasn't in a in an actual band in high school. I had a group of friends that I would jam with. Okay. Bluegrass music at that point. Yeah, I was playing a lot of bluegrass. So but, that was your first... Bluegrass was the first type of music that you were drawn uh, to on the guitar. Well, the, my very first, the very first music I played when I was just starting to learn was actually classical music. Because oh, I wow. had this teacher who was a classical, classical guy. And mm-hmm. I played, you know, gut string, guitar. And um, I remember I went to a symposium of young classical guitar players somewhere in San Francisco. I forget. As a participant or an audience no, member? No, as an audience okay. member with my dad. And it was somewhere on Turk Street in San Francisco. I forget the, the venue. But I remember thinking, oh, this is beautiful, but I don't want to do this. <laughs> this is like <laughs> not my thing at all, you know. Like, this is this thing is really lame. <laughs> so how did you... <laughs> I mean, the classical guitar music okay. is great, but it just, you know, so it wasn't you, for me. So you said, all right, what is the... Oh, if if classical's over here, what's over here? Bluegrass so, is that is that well, how you landed on bluegrass? Or? Not quite. Well, at the same time, my this guitar teacher I had, who was just a real mystical weirdo cat. His name is Nick Shryock. Uh-huh. Man, I, I need to get back in touch with Nick. But he was <laughs> he was kind of my mentor. I mean, he he introduced me to to all sorts of art, you know, film and mm. uh, literature and fine dining, you know. Because my parents were, you know, they they like they're fans of things, but they're not really. You know, they're not really super into the arts. So I was um, exposed to a lot of stuff through Nick. And uh, one of the things he did was he gave me a, a book of Bob Dylan songs just to, so I could learn how to play basic chords. I mean, this is like before I was even really playing etudes and stuff. I mean, it was a very first lesson maybe, just right. so I could get accustomed to basic sort of cowboy chords, you know, first position chords. And I remember falling in love with it. I mean, I'd heard like blowing in the wind and what, you know, but I, I didn't really understand how deep and beautiful this music was. And through Dylan, I started um, exploring and getting into older music. And I remember when I was 13 or 14, I would go down to the Borders Books. You know, I think that's what it was at the time. You know, they don't really even have those kinds of stores anymore, big music bookstores. And I'd look for the Smithsonian Folkways records. And I'd go buy, you know, save up and I'd buy like a couple of them because they were like $18 you know yeah, it's like yeah. still like you know 2000 yeah. <laughs> and um, you know I think the first bluegrass record I ever bought was this CD by the Country Gentleman uh, that Folkways put out it's just a you know I think it actually was a reissue of an older record but it was all live cuts from the early 60s the first Country Gentleman lineup with mm-hmm. uh, Eddie Adcock playing the really crazy weirdo cool banjo <laughs> Um, Tom Duffy, you know Charlie Waller, and um, I think that was a good entry point because it's very much was sort of folk bluegrass, older material, you know, stuff that would have been um, marketed probably as folk music at the time, playing for college kids. And, yep. Um, you know, Flat and Scruggs took a very similar approach. You know, but, but Dylan was kind of your doorway to that music. Yes. Then. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Mm-hmm. 
And so that inspired you to start playing in that style. Yeah, and also inspired me to write, start writing songs. Oh. You know, and I was, I probably started writing songs when I was 13 or 14 years old, and they were very derivative of, you know, this kind of stream of consciousness, 60s Dylan thing. And then I kind of stopped writing songs for a few years, and then I got back into it in college. Because okay. um, I guess I was just overwhelmed by school. I mean, I was like a straight A student. Yes. I was not, uh, you know, I, I wish I wish I wasn't. You know, now I wish I'd spent that time actually practicing or something. <laughs> <laughs> Any of those old songs from your thirteen or fourteen still hang around? No, no, those, they're all gone. I mean, I remember them, but I don't remember never playing. words, and I don't, you know, I don't remember the exact yeah. lyrics or anything. So, did you then introduce your friends to the bluegrass stuff and get them to play with you? I mean, was there a scene at all at um, where you were? There wasn't really a scene where I was at. I mean, there were some kids in in Marin and San Francisco that played bluegrass, but I didn't really meet them until college. Okay. Um, uh, I did grow up with my, my childhood friend is Sam Grisman. Oh, whose dad David? Name. You know, yeah, was, you know, big fixture in acoustic music. Absolutely, and still is. I mean, played with Jerry and yeah. Um, this is sort of the, the connection between sort of that whole California deadhead scene and like the legit bluegrass yep. world, you know, because David started playing mandolin when he was a teenager. Yes. He was, he played mandolin for Red Allen, who's like, you know, it's weird in California, um, as opposed to even like really the South. I mean, there's a whole, it's either, you're either in kind of like the hippie grass world or there's like a whole really traditional kind right. of hardcore bluegrass scene that's, they're, they worship, you know, Red Allen. Yes, and Grisman uh, is kind yeah. of like the the link, right? Yes, the modern yeah, link yeah. To that. Mm-hmm. I mean, his career is incredible. So you just happened to end up friends with his son, or was it a musical connection uh, that we got went to you computer there? camp together? When we <laughs> of course, were really you did. little kids, like five years old, <laughs> okay. and our moms were friends. Um, so that's how we met each that's other. That's interesting yeah. coincidence for you. Yeah. So then you found your way across the coast. Columbia, right? For college? I yeah, I right. did go to Columbia, yeah. Um, that was a... So what happened musically there for um, you? You know, when I went to Columbia, I wasn't thinking that I was going to be a professional musician. I was mm-hmm. thinking maybe I'd be a lawyer or something. But um, about a couple years into school, I realized I kind of hated it. <laughs> no, <laughs> the academics? Yeah, I hate, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I realized I wasn't really like with my people, you know? Right. So I just started getting real hardcore into music. Mm-hmm. And they had... Um, Part of that was me working at the radio station, WKCR, shout out. Great radio station, you know, mostly student run, but there's also alums that run shows, mainly jazz programming. Okay. But um, we have like three different country music programs, bluegrass show, gospel show, a couple different blues shows. So I, um, for four years, I was the Sunday morning DJ, 10 a.m. to noon. I was, the show was called The Moonshine Show, and we did uh, old-time music and bluegrass yeah, okay, you're in a college campus. That Sunday morning slot was probably available. I'm yeah, guessing. yeah. Well, <laughs> there was a guy named Matt, Matt Winters, who actually is a professor now at the uh, University of Champaign-Urbana. Oh, okay. Um, he was an alumni or okay. alumnus of yeah. uh, Columbia who um, had stuck around and was doing the radio show. And he'd done it for 10 years, I guess, during the time that he was a student. And, and you know, he... Uh, sort of chose me to continue it on because mm. I was the only person in the on the staff that knew anything about bluegrass at all. Okay. So I kind of got the... So you had his legacy. Default. Yeah. yeah. But the show had been going on since the early... or Sorry, the late 60s uh, under a different name, but um, a guy named Pete Wernick, who is a banjo player, plays in that band Hot Rise. Yep. 
Um, he started the show when he was a student at Columbia okay. back in the 60s. Is the show still going on, do you think? In its, I think so, in yeah. Format. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And so how about performing in college? Did you do much of that in the city? Well, I had a band my um, senior year of college. We were called the Guilford County Kings. Bluegrass? Bluegrass band. This is me and my friend uh, Bennett Sullivan, mm-hmm. North Carolinian banjo player. My friend Neil Perlman from Maine played mandolin and our friend Max Johnson played bass. Okay. And uh we you know, we existed for probably five or six months, mm-hmm. played like I don't know, ten shows and that was that was Back it. Fence. <laughs> Is that was that a was that a place when you were there, the Back Fence? No, we, we played a uh, Banjo Gems, which okay. no longer exists. Mm-hmm. This is before uh, Skinny Dennis was a thing. Right. Now like there's a country scene and bluegrass scene in Brooklyn. In Brooklyn. But that was the sort of beginning when I was living okay. there. And I wasn't you know, we had um, there were a lot of jams. Like um, okay. there was this jam at this place called Sunny's Bar in Red Hook, Brooklyn. There's a jam at a bar on the Lower East Side called Mona's that started when I was still living there. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a performance slash jam right. kind of thing. So uh, eventually, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. You find your way to Nashville, and the music you're playing now I wouldn't categorize as bluegrass. No, definitely not. So, so what was that evolution for you? Well, I mean, bluegrass was always just part of what I was interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was a good entryway for me into music because of how the communal nature of it. You know, um, I didn't grow up in a musical household, so I think part of it was I was sort of longing for like a musical family and right. camaraderie. Yeah, the bluegrass um, world, that, that pretty much defines it from yeah. my experience, yeah. Yeah, so uh, that was part of it, and uh, I never intended to just play bluegrass. You know, when I was okay. in college, I got really into... Um, you know, old school country music, honky tonk music, you know, electric guitars and Mm -hmm. things. When I moved uh, to Nashville, that's sort of what I fell into because by that point I was writing songs and I wasn't really interested in doing the bluegrass thing anymore. Kind of got a little burnt out on it. I get the strong sense that tradition in music is important to you, whether it is bluegrass or the country, the western honky tonk kind of style that you play now. Mm -hmm. Um, How do you think about making new music and being creative within those old traditions. I'm sure um, we could talk about this for a while, but I'm sure you have yeah. some thoughts on that. Yeah, I think I think if you think about it too hard, you're bound to fall into some sort of derivative pattern. Mm-hmm. So I think the best thing to do is to just try and be creative, and you know, have done your homework and just you know, have learned all these old songs, and they're just in there. You know, you can't help it at that point. Right. And so you know, your own individual spontaneity and creativity will just naturally draw upon those sources. But I think if you try to write a song in a sort of a retro style or whatever, it can often just turn out terrible. You mm-hmm. know, it can just become this kind of contrived, you know, idea of the thing rather than the thing. I try not to think about it too much, but yeah, it's it's hard. You know, it's hard to um, come up with with new things. Right, everything's kind of been done. <laughs> yeah, but it is a these are living traditions, right? Yes, that we yeah. talk about. Part of what is happening in the bluegrass and country worlds are just reworkings of the old traditional songs. And part mm-hmm. of it is new people coming along and writing new music. So Yeah, I mean, I've done my homework. Uh, I've spent most of my life just playing covers and, you know, traditional songs. So right. It's just kind of baked in there. So in Nashville, did, there was a period where you were getting gigs playing cover songs in some of the bars in, in Nashville? Yeah, so I was in this band called The Cowpokes, another band called The Benders. We were just sort of bar bands mm-hmm. and played um, honky-tonk covers, a lot of Mel Tillis songs, a lot of shuffles, Ray Price, that kind of thing. So as a live performer, 
how do you see the traditions of that music coming into the way you perform now? Those country, I mean, they were coming from a world where there was still, the echoes of vaudeville were still apparent, like it was entertainment. Mm -hmm. They were putting on a show. They wore costumes, you know, so I'm not really... It's comedy stuff yeah, in there. It's not, it's not really my world, you know. I, you know, I'm from sort of a more laid-back, kind of West Coast, sort of post-90s kind of mentality. Right. So I don't really, you know, there's not like a... But at the same time, I do love drama and dramatic, you know, music and, and pageantry and all that kind of stuff, so... I don't know. Maybe I meet it somewhere in the middle. Okay. Yeah. But I guess I'm a little bit more rock and roll than those guys were. <laughs> you know, in terms of just, I don't know. Not that I'm sloppy or anything, but... Yes. Yeah, I have a... I've seen you perform. You're yeah. not sloppy. Thank you. I can verify that. <laughs> <laughs> you are a thoughtful performer, yeah. Yeah. if anything. Yeah. But I don't try to do, like, the retro, you know, like, shticky kind right. of thing. Rhinestones. No. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I like rhinestone suits, but yeah. I think if I wore one, I would be kind of... Um, you know, for a special occasion or something. I look forward to seeing you in one someday. <laughs> <laughs> um, so now we've we've traced your path. West Coast, New York, Nashville. How do you think about sense of place in your music when you are writing songs? Do you, do you feel like sense of place has, an, has a, yeah. a part of, of what comes out of you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I do feel that I'm part of the sort of Western trajectory, the sort of tradition and stream of, of music, you know, Country music in the west on the west coast is always defined by um, danceable rhythms, right. and electric guitars, and just sort of this was louder, a little bit more obnoxious mm -hmm. than than you know the eastern music. At one point in time, there really was a distinction between uh, country and western. You know, there's I was going to bring this up. There's a famous line in the Blues Brothers movie where yeah. they're at the bar and the woman says, "We have both kinds, country and western." <laughs> yeah. And people think that's funny, but yeah. it actually isn't that funny because. Yeah, they're two different totally. kinds of music. Right? So Western music can mean cowboy music, like mm -hmm. movie cowboy music, Gene right. Autry and stuff. Um, but which, it, the real Western music has that swing, that danceability. Yeah. Would you say? So I think I think there's musical distinction, but it's also a cultural one. Okay. Because in the West, um, the West was the first part of the country to have, um, at least in the country music tradition to have you know real what you would think of as like dance halls and real honky tonk mississippi to the well, to the coast you know mm -hmm. texas oklahoma arizona california um so where, dancing was yeah. part of that scene yeah i mean there's yeah. a great anecdote about in the 50s ray price took his like 10-piece band to um somewhere north carolina or virginia and they were just bewildered they didn't know what to do the audience you know so uh uh, he uh, stripped it all down, just had the fiddle player play tunes, and yeah. went out there with an acoustic guitar, and all of a sudden everyone started dancing. And that kind of demonstrates the cultural difference there. I mean, at the same time that the Grand Ole Opry had people like Roy Acuff and the Smoky Mountain Boys, people like that, and on the West Coast it was like Speedy West, and right. just crazy electric guitar music. Yeah. And the two were very different, and then they kind of, you know, people like Ernest Tubb is kind of like the first Western... Um, star of the Grand Ole Opry, you know, he was the brought electric guitars into it. I mean, at that point, still the early West, uh, early Ernest Tubb music doesn't have, even have drums. It has echoes of this sort of burgeoning Texas swing thing, but it's still it's like hillbilly fied. Yeah, I mean, there's all there's that story about Bob Wills bring dr trying to bring drums on the Grand Ole Opry, and then you can tell that story. I mean, I don't really know the exact details of it, but yeah, he it was a big deal. He brought tried to bring a drummer, and they they wouldn't let him do it. It would be like Dylan going electric kind yeah, of exactly. situation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that that really the distinction between those two kinds of music, the Appalachian 
country music and the Western kind yeah. of swing music was almost as drastic as mm-hmm. folk and rock. Yeah. Really, right. And I mean, it's kind of get thrown together now. Yeah. And those Western guys, they were influenced by, they were really influenced by the pop music of the day. I right. mean, just in terms of their singing and they're all crooners. Mm-hmm. It's sort of, I, so I view myself as coming out of that tradition yes. mainly. Not that it's necessarily a direct line, but. Uh, well, yeah, you just used the word crooner. So this, I was going to get to this later. I've seen you perform a couple of times and, and, I, would, I have used that term to describe you to other people. Mm-hmm. You, can you talk a little bit about using your voice as an instrument and what, what it is you, you try to do? Yeah, well, um, there's a couple different things that fascinate me about singing. One is uh, um, phrasing. Mm-hmm. So I really like listening to jazz singers and, and uh, just sort of creative phrasing, how to make a familiar melody different and... I don't know. Sometimes I get a little carried away with it. I mean, my my big hero, you know, right, is Willie Nelson. Who's right. just like made a career of that. Um, you know, if you listen to Willie Nelson's early recordings, everything is so far back, and now he puts everything way up front. You know. What do you mean by phrases. so far back? For so he'll phrase front. lines way behind the beat. Okay. As opposed to what he'll do now, if you see him, is usually oftentimes he'll he'll pack all of the words at the front of the of the of the bar, or you know, the you know, front of the beat, and sort of put the space at the back mm-hmm. rather than leaving space at the front end of it. The best metaphor I ever heard about time and music is that, you know, the tempo of the song is like a train, like a freight train. Okay. And the notes are um, the cars. Right. Or like where you put the notes are the cars. But you can choose to, if you're a hobo on the car, you know, you can choose to either be at the front of the car or the back of the car. So the music is still going at the same rate, but the individual musician or soloist is going to you know choose where they um you know emphasize you know which side of the beat they're emphasizing so in bluegrass it's like you know a lot of the the phrasing is way up front and then you know in other styles of music it's a little bit more laid back so you like to think of yourself as the musical hobo is that oh yeah where you are (laughs) but you know i like to get kind of weird with with phrasing and um country music is full of such uh, it's such an incredible tradition of, of vocal ornamentation. Yes. Different, I mean, the thing that was so great about old country singers is everyone had their own distinct style. Mm-hmm. And uh, they really worked at it. And it was kind of this arcane, you know, architecture of phraseology and melismas. I mean, it's like, you know, you can, it's a, it's, you can really get into it. I mean, yeah. it's like a George Jones. I mean, he'll put like six syllables on one vowel, you know. It's, it's a pretty... They didn't Indeed. have auto-tune either. No. <laughs> <laughs> so this, I, I read a little bit about, you mentioned something along these lines. This gets into your writing also, in term, right? In terms of the lyrical style you use, you want to leave room within your lyrics for interpretation. Is yeah, yeah. Right? Instead of being too wordy. Yeah, I mean, I, I've always liked sort of um, minimalism and art generally. Some of the great country music songwriters of the... 60s and the 50s were masters of that because I think that was first of all like the the style of writing at that time kind of called for it this is you know pre-Dylan right I mean we're, they're still writing very basic pop songs mm-hmm. uh, and uh, there were you know a handful of guys that were just masters of this kind of craft I think I you know heard Marty Stewart call it hillbilly haiku one time right right so it's like you know Mel Tillis Hank Cochran Willie Nelson those guys were masters of condensing a really powerful emotional idea into very few words. Right. And 
from your perspective that allows you to use your phrasing more effectively? Yes. Right. So I think a lot of songwriters, and I mean, there's different styles of writing, mm-hmm. whatever, but if you're writing a country song, you want to make sure there's space for you to sing it. Right. You know, you don't want to pack too many words in there. Uh, at least that's my my opinion. You know, mm-hmm. so much of country music is using the voice to elicit kind of an emotional response in and of itself. You aside know, from aside the words from the words themselves. themselves, yeah. So uh, I think it's you got to leave some space to do that. Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of a I don't want to say a contrast, but a different approach. I mean, Guy Clark, for example, that mm-hmm. tradition, yeah, had an econ his his real skill was an economy of words Absolutely. to get an emotion across. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't really in the vocal delivery. It was almost no. in just the poetry yeah. of the words themselves. The, the Texas you're, tradition, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. you're kind of talking about a slightly different take on that yeah. where the where you're leaving room for the voice to yeah. bring some of that emotion. Yeah. For sure. I mean there's the, the, the folk singing tradition of, of you know telling a story and all yeah. that's also really important and I ascribe to that too. But you know there's there's also this kind of this art of country music singing that kind of revolves around these sort of basic um, linguistic frameworks. Mm -hmm. Uh, All right, let's talk about some of your music. You have recorded an album that is not out yet, right? But you have Mm -hmm. released two of the songs from it. Um, We can talk about one of those, uh, Starlight. I hear some surf rock guitar in there. Is that Mm -hmm. maybe the California influence in you? Yeah, I mean, I definitely... um... You know, I don't really like um, country Telecaster chicken picking. Okay. It kind of leaves a bad taste in my mouth. <laughs> it's sort of become kind of a caricature of itself, and I'm just not into it. Right. And so the kind of guitar playing, the kind of twang I want is more like a Dwayne Eddy thing. Mm-hmm. It suits my music better. It's more, it's moodier. Yeah. You know, so that's the kind of guitar playing I tend to gravitate towards, and when I have people play with me, that's kind of what I, what I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so with the song Starlight, there is also a there's a really long instrumental section in there, yeah. which is kind of surprising for your first mm-hmm. single yeah. from this. So can you talk about the recording of the song and, and where where yeah and how that came about? So we recorded that song live. I think that was the second or third take. And um, um, Russ Paul, the guitar player, one of the guitar players on that song, um, came up with this lick and uh, sort of became a motif for the record. It appears on. Another song on the album that's not released yet, mm-hmm. called "Someday." You know, we got through finishing the you know the, the last verse and chorus, and uh, we just kept playing it. You know, T Bone was playing with us in the studio, and he just kept. I knew he was just sort of in a trance, and we just rode with it. And uh, no one knew how long that instrumental was going to be. We just sort of felt it out, and yeah. when uh, you know when the when we got out of it, I just decided to sing the song all over again. So. And that was the version we had. We had so, the right energy. So within that recording of that song, you decided to repeat the verse. Yeah. And that's what ended up being the final recorded version of the song. Yeah, there was no plan to yeah, do that. That's interesting. We completely winged it. That's great. <laughs> Starlight Ain't the daylight
attributed to you it is a song about the unseen world the hidden realms that lie behind the veneer concocted by our physical senses <laughs> yeah well that's what it's about yeah can you yeah. talk about that a little bit um yeah i mean i was just hanging out in my house one day and i thought it was raining outside but it wasn't raining and i thought wow isn't that sort of a beautiful metaphor for uh, the veil that we sort of cast over our own existence mm. you know the, the lies that we tell ourselves um just to get through the day. Mm-hmm. A meditation on the subjective nature of experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Disguised, <laughs> disguised as a simple country heartbreak. That's yeah. Deep, that's some deep stuff, man. Uh, the world I see, I don't believe. Right. Now the world that I see Through the eyes of my mind Contemplative nature or med- meditative way. Can yeah, you... well, me and T Bone sort of dubbed it trance and Western music. Trance and Western, I like that. Yeah, so I mean, I think I came into it thinking we're going to make this kind of spooky, noir, mm-hmm. sort of raising sand esque country record with some, you know, twists and turns. And I think we, we kind of succeeded. I mean, yes. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, there's a lot of, I mean, some people would probably say that solo on Starlight is excessive or too long but it's not a solo you know it's like a it's like a slow building trance like meditative instrumental section right you know it's not supposed to be a solo so you ascribe to the old school way of an album being a complete work as opposed to the modern like let's throw some single series of singles out there and eventually release them as a as a record yeah i mean that's definitely the goal my goal you mm-hmm. know is to make albums that actually feel interconnected and like they all work as one one whole right so uh, this album now will will be released early next year is the current plan right mm-hmm. in so, february but you're gonna have an ep out later this in year october yeah right 
So were there songs that you had and thought were good at the time you recorded the album that didn't go on because they didn't fit that mood you were trying to build? Yes. Yeah, I mean, there were songs that uh, me and T-Bone both thought were not appropriate for this album. Right. And there were songs that I wrote, actually one of the songs I wrote during the recording process Mm -hmm. to have something that would glue a couple of the songs together. So now on this EP that's coming on the fall, maybe we'll hear one or two of the songs that wouldn't have fit on the album. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's the two of the, the tracks that are going to be on this EP are from the record. A couple of them are. Yeah. And a couple mm-hmm. of them are not. A couple of them are not. Okay. Yeah. So here you were, you get to Nashville, like a lot of other young singer-songwriters, and from my perspective, next thing you know, T-Bone Burnett hears your music and says... I'm going to do something with this young man. It's got to be a little... I mean, it might have been a long time to build for you to there, but mm-hmm. it, it's kind of an interesting position that yeah. puts you in. Right? I mean, it was crazy. I mean, so at that point, I'd been living in Nashville for three years, something like that. I was working in bars, you know, playing cover bands, doing that kind of thing. And I had this friend named Mark Thornton. He's a great guitar player. He... Uh, played rhythm guitar for uh, Jerry Reed okay. in the 90s, sort of like the last Jerry Reed you know, era. Great fingerstyle player. And also he's a recording engineer. He has a studio at his house in Madison. And I went over there one day, and he had a microphone that he had just purchased. It's kind of a weird-looking space needle kind of apparatus. Okay. I don't even know like what side of it was the microphone. But he, he pulled it out and he said, Hey, Logan, why don't you play a couple tunes into this microphone? So I did. I got out my guitar and I um, played a song called Let the Mermaids Flirt With Me, mm-hmm. which is a title I got from Mississippi John Hurt. Thank you, John Hurt. Okay. Who he, he, in turn, based his song off of a Jimmy Rogers song called Waiting for a Train. He wrote new words to it. And I don't know where he heard that phrase, but I thought it was a great phrase and you know, I took it and wrote a completely different song. Mm-hmm. So that's continuing the folk tradition. Right. But uh, anyway, um, played that song, played a couple other ones. Didn't think anything of it. A couple weeks passed by and Mark gives me a call and he says, Hey man, uh, my friend Dennis Crouch came over the other day and uh, he laid down some bass. I laid down some guitar. We turned it into a real demo. And mm-hmm. He sent it to me and I'm like, shit, this is a, this sounds really good. I don't know. This is, I mean, I wasn't even really playing in time. Like I was... I was like you phoning you, it in. You thought you were trying out a yeah, microphone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was not. I mean, but it, it turned out great. I mean, and, uh, you know, I'd heard of Dennis Crouch before. Dennis, of course, is a guy who played on, who's played on most of T-Bone's projects since like 2002 or something like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was the original bass player in the Time Jumpers, you know, pre, pre-Vince Gill era Time Jumpers. Yep. They were playing at the Station Inn, sort of a Nashville fixture. And uh, I thought, that's really cool. And then I get a call a couple days after that, and it's Mark, and he said, hey, hey, man, uh, Dennis sent your sent the recordings to T-Bone, and he wants to meet you. Wow. I'm like, holy shit. So I went, you know, I went into Mark's house, met Dennis for the very first time. Uh, I think we cut another song, and I got on the phone with T-Bone's assistant, and she, uh, you know, bought the plane ticket and two days later I think I was in Los Angeles Mm. having dinner with T-Bone wow yeah it was wild and um, it's funny I mean even before T-Bone had heard me sing he was all in he was like man we're gonna 
we're really going to do this. We're going to make a record. We're going to find a label, all this stuff. And I'm like, holy crap, like this is, this is the craziest thing. Uh, then the next day, I walked over to his house. I was staying at a little uh, hotel on Sunset, you know, walkable to his house. Walked over. He was still getting ready, you know, making coffee, start of the day. And uh, he had uh, just learned, or maybe he had forgotten, or I forget exactly, but he was like, oh, man, we forgot. We got to go to a, a barbecue at Bono's house. <laughs> this has now turned into a, a rock and roll legendary yeah. story. <laughs> it's like, what am I gotten myself into here? Does it end with a hotel room being torn apart or something? No, okay. no, not All this right. time. Not this one. But uh, we... Uh, we got in the car, went to Malibu, it took like an hour. <laughs> to Bono's Barbecue. To Bono's Barbecue at his house that he was renting in Malibu. And he must have just been renting this house because there was no furniture. And it was like four stories, you know, like right on the beach. And we got there, you know, Swedish valet guy parked the car, sure. walked in. Uh, and we were like kind of painfully early, like a little too early maybe. Uh, not painfully early, but you know, early. And uh, the um, it was just Bono. And... Uh, <laughs> and uh, like a producer and I, I don't know exactly who it was a few people yeah. and they were listening to the new U2 record oh boy you know, that was, had not been released that had not been released I was like whoa this is a wild scene and I've, I've got to tell you Bono could not have been nicer he was super cool that's great like he was a really gracious host you know he, I mean the dude is the dude is like a really nice guy remembers yeah. everybody's name yeah. like he knows what he's doing anyway uh, a T-Bone had you know, asked me to bring a guitar along, think, thinking maybe we could be some entertainment or sure. you know, play for the play for the people. And uh, you know, Timo goes, "Hey, hey, Logan, why don't you uh, play that Mermaid song?" And I'm like, "Okay, I'll, I'll get the guitar out and for you know, Bono, for Bono." Uh, <laughs> I played, I played, let the mermaids flirt with me, and Bono just, you know, he he really liked it, you oh, know, and he yeah. got out his phone and he was taking video of me, and you know, he got got the ocean in the background somewhere. Out in the cloud, you know, there's Bono's video of, of me playing Mermaids. I'd wow. like to see it someday. You know. But, you know, every, every time a new guest would come in, Bono would, would ask me to play the song again. Oh, and wow. It was like, Ashton Kutcher comes in and he's like, hey, Logan, play the song again for Ashton. Wow. <laughs> Jimmy Kimmel was there. That guy's really nice, really yeah. cool guy. He was talking about, we were talking about, you know, Nashville versus his hometown, Las Vegas, <laughs> which Nashville seems to be turning into more and more every day. Right. But yeah, I mean, it was like, you know, it was kind of weird, that surreal, is, That is a story scene. for the books. Yeah. <laughs> that is great. The whole time I was like, oh shit, man, what, what, this is crazy. What have I got myself into? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it was great, you know, and, uh, you know, T-Bone could not have been cooler. Mm -hmm. We went back to his house and I forget, I think, I forget what else happened that trip, but it was, you know, a very impactful trip for me. And, you know, that was three years ago. And I've been working with T-Bone since then. I've got to know him pretty well. Right. Uh, You've played a couple of shows in his band, is that right? Yes. So uh, I played with him twice at the Hardly Strictly Bluegrass Festival in San Francisco. Yep. We didn't play this past year, but I played in uh, uh, 2017 and 2016. He doesn't get out and play much, am I no, right? No, those were the only two full band shows I think he's had in the past three years. Yeah. That and, must have been experience. Yeah, I mean, the first show that we did in 2016 was a more traditional T-Bone show. We played, you know, stuff, for, you know, from his older records. And Dennis was in the band, and we had uh, David Mansfield, who played with T-Bone in the Alpha Band and also in the Rolling Thunder Review. Great New York-based musician, plays everything, composer. 
Yeah, that was really cool. And then in 2017, we did T-Bone's electronic music. Oh, wow. You know, stuff from his new album, which hadn't been released at that point. And that was wild. You know, people were like, didn't really know how to take it. Yeah. It was great. It was like, I felt like we were really doing something. uh, We were really like making art, you know? Yes. (laughs) It was, it was, it was a beautiful, beautiful experience and beautiful thing to be part of. What a three year ride it has been for you. So far. Yeah. It's been great. Yeah. Well, Logan, I really appreciate you taking the time. I appreciate you, Mike. This has been a great chat. I feel like we could do this for two more hours. Oh, absolutely. I think you have a lot of musical information in you. So we might have to do (laughs) another episode sometime. Maybe when the album comes out, we can talk about the rest of the songs. Just let me know. I'll do it. But thanks very much. Now, we're going to try something we've never done before. Uh, on the Tell You What podcast, Logan has agreed to try and play us a song live in our studio. Yeah, yeah. So let's see how that goes. Logan, what do you got for us? This is an old Hank Williams classic. A little song called I Can't Help It If I'm Still in Love With You. Today, all right. Today I passed you on the street. And my heart fell at your feet I can't help it If I'm still in love with you Somebody else walked by your side And he looked so satisfied I can't help it if I'm still in love. A picture from the past came slowly stealing as I brushed your arm. Walked so close to you And then suddenly I got that old time feeling I can't help it If I'm still in love Oh, it's hard to know another's lips will kiss you. And hold you the way I used to do. Oh, heaven only knows.
Logan. Thanks very much. Thank you.